hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to the show this week. Uh, we are now at the peak of the Omicron outbreak in COVID-19. This peak is more than twice as tall as any prior outbreak peak, higher than the Alpha and certainly higher than the Delta outbreak. But it's a very narrow peak. Uh, by looking at data from South Africa, Germany, <clears throat> Denmark, and the UK, it looks like the Omicron outbreak is going to be about six weeks long. We may have another two weeks in the American outbreak, and then uh, it should be on the way down. We have learned that Omicron uh, confers natural immunity against Delta, provides immunity against additional Omicron infections, and many are speculating that this could close the pandemic. I'm not so hopeful, given uh, the, the clear <clears throat> tendency for hyperdominant mutants to uh, come as a result of mass vaccination. The CDC nowcast has the United States uh, at greater than 95% Omicron, so almost every case out there is Omicron. What we're learning is that most patients can be treated with over-the-counter uh, approaches, uh, the nasal washes, which we featured here, we're using uh, dilute povidone iodine, less than a 1% solution, uh, or dilute hydrogen peroxide. How that's done is a 10% betadine or povidone iodine uh, solution. Take one half teaspoon of that in a shot glass of water, 1.5 cc's of water, pinch of salt, and uh, take a bulb syringe or a spray bottle over the sink, spray it up into the nose, sniff it way back, and then spit it out. It's got to clear out the sinuses from front to back, then gargle with the rest. Can do that up to four times a day during acute Omicron infections. It knocks down the viral load in the nose tremendously, and many times that alone relieves the symptoms. We do advise an over-the-counter bundle, which includes zinc, 50 milligrams uh, a day, uh, vitamin D, 5,000 international units a day prevention. We go to transiently to treatment at 20,000 units a day uh, and then for about five days. Uh, then vitamin C, acute treatment, 3,000 milligrams a day. Quercetin, 500 milligrams once a day prevention, 500 milligrams a day, twice a day uh, treatment. And then an over-the-counter medication, famotidine or Pepsid, used as an antihistamine and acid, but it also reduces viral replication and we use that in a dose of 80 milligrams a day. That's the what's called the OTC bundle in the McCullough Protocol. People have relied on it. Uh, we've had a few high-risk seniors where we've used uh, sotirivimab, the GSK monoclonal antibody. That's the only one remaining that we believe has a positive impact. And uh, we've done that successfully in some high-risk seniors. Uh, we've had some people less than, than that in terms of risk, but still significant risk that have developed some modest pulmonary symptoms. And I personally have used the combination of, uh, of uh, weight-based ivermectin at 600 micrograms per kilogram uh, per day uh, for a brief blast at anywhere from three to five days with prednisone, 20 milligrams twice a day. Typically add azithromycin, uh, 500 milligrams a day, or doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day. Uh, and that's largely what's been needed for Omicron. Uh, we use preventively aspirin, 
325 milligrams a day for 30 days. Those with atherosclerosis extended 90 days, although we have not seen thromboembolic risks with Omicron because it's less invasive. And I haven't used any systemic anticoagulation now with Omicron. That's my clinical practice. I've managed uh, dozens and dozens of patients and based on the best available sources of information that I have as we continue to follow the outbreak. There's been no shortage of news uh, out there, and I wanted to update you on a few things. Uh, first is that the uh, European Union and the World Health Organization has called for an end to COVID-19 boosters, citing evidence that the strategy is failing. And in that announcement, which occurred this week, uh, there was <clears throat> a, a lot of uh, future statements regarding uh, new vaccines that could come forward as soon as March, but that would depend on randomized trials, as well as the persistence of whatever the dominant variant is. The Omicron uh, outbreak almost certainly is going to be over with in March, so I'm not sure what the vaccine manufacturers could actually test against, uh, and it appears as if we're always dealing uh, with legacy variants by the time vaccines come out uh, that we have legacy variants. But it's clear that the European Union and WHO have basically thrown in the towel and capitulated. And we heard this week from Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of England, also dropping all mandates, all masks, all work restrictions, etc., basically getting back to normal. So I think this is a, uh, you know, two very favorable signs that have uh, come from the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, the other big news is that there's a march on Washington on <clears throat> Sunday, uh, January 23rd, with some uh, speaking appearances. I have one slated. I have to get in on time from another engagement to make that speaking uh, appearance in Washington. It'll be near the <coughs> Lincoln Memorial, where I'll be speaking with other dignitaries. And then we move right into a media advisory. There is a Senator Johnson is holding a panel discussion on COVID-19, a second opinion. Uh, and this uh, is a group of world-renowned doctors and medical experts who will provide a different perspective on global pandemic response, the current state of knowledge of early and hospital treatment, vaccine efficacy and safety, and will basically advise the Senate as well as government officials who've been invited on what went wrong what went right, and what can be done now to address things in the future. The moderator is Senator Ron Johnson. I'll be leading off this group with my presentation on the four pillars of pandemic response, uh, indicating uh, what we do along the lines of limiting the spread of the virus, early home treatment, hospital treatment, and vaccination. We do have uh, leaders in each one of these positions to uh, review this uh, for uh, the U.S. public. This will be Monday, January 24th from 9 a.m., to 12 p.m. Eastern, and it'll be in the Russell Senate office building, the Kennedy Caucus Room 325. So a lot of credit, or credit to Senator Ron Johnson, who is now running for re-election as a senator in uh, the great state of Wisconsin. And uh, so that's a, a, you know, a busy week ahead that we have with COVID-19 uh, news in, in terms of uh, not only the, the outbreak, but also public policy. I did receive some music, and I wanted to have at least one part of the music segment come in. I, I received this from Andy Arnold, who's a Canadian. Now, this is a Canadian piece. Uh, it's uh, music that is, uh, in a sense, satirical, and it goes along with a video that um, <clears throat> is oriented towards uh, Premier of Canada, Pierre Trudeau, 
and I wanted to uh, just play this for you so you can get a sense of the struggles of our Canadian colleagues and uh, you can listen to the uh, the lyrics which I again I think are uh, satirical uh, and um, and sarcastic but uh, for for uh, for your listening pleasure here we go don't want to get vaccinated chill out what you're lying for way back you had a heart before your fear mongering ain't giving me immunity and nobody else believes what you tell you're talking you smack with no proof to back you try to be cool you look like a tool to me So that was a brief uh, piece from KS Sask Freedom Network. You know, there are so many grassroots networks that are arising uh, that are really grounded in medical freedom. I recently this week traveled to Billings, Montana and had a wonderful program hosted by a Freedom Network in Billings. We had nearly uh, a thousand people in a hotel room and uh, we had a public program uh, that went over vaccine safety and efficacy. I was joined on the stage by Dr. Michael Uphuse, who is a family physician who's wonderful. He's treated thousands of patients with COVID-19, maintains clinics across uh, Montana. He's worked with the Indian uh, uh, health crisis there. The Native American Indians also has clinics in Florida. Uh, and it was a real pleasure to have him uh, join me on the stage. He's also been on the McCullough Report in the past. And then we moved into the next morning in Billings, Montana with lawmakers. And we had dozens of state representatives and went over the issues of pandemic response. Uh, and there was a tremendous number of very constructive suggestions that came out of that meeting uh, in order to ensure uh, a much more level playing field uh, moving forward. One of the things the legislatures uh, are interested in is hospital care. And they are asking the questions, why are there no centers for excellence for COVID-19 treatment? Why, why do none of the hospitals claim uh, to have expert uh, expertise or to be better than one another <clears throat> and compete for COVID-19 business? Uh, they compete avidly for cardiovascular care and cancer care. Why is it that no hospital considers itself a center of excellence for COVID-19? Why is it that no hospital has innovated with their original protocols to go above and beyond the baseline standards of the National Institutes of Health, uh, CDC, and Infectious Disease Society of America kind of general guidance on COVID-19 care? Uh, they are disappointed <clears throat> in their hospital administrators. They have questions regarding where are the monoclonal antibodies? What, what do the hospitals offer as a monoclonal antibody program? And how are they going to work with the new Pfizer and Merck medications that are now fully EUA approved? So I think uh, the third year of the pandemic is going to be the year of hospital and uh, practicing physician accountability on COVID-19. Uh, now that we have these products fully deployed, uh, what will be the excuses of doctors who don't treat patients with COVID-19? It may be a moot point since there'll be so few patients with Omicron 
that need acute treatment. That's been my practice experience right now. It is a very, very mild syndrome. And we're looking forward to hopefully getting through Omicron and not having a new reality emerge with respect to uh, a more difficult viral syndrome uh, to treat. I want to give you some insight into what's going on in the science of vaccine injury syndromes and what we're learning with respect to COVID-19. You know, there's over a thousand peer-reviewed publications on vaccine injuries, and they categorize into uh, neurologic, cardiac, immunologic, and hematologic injuries. Uh, First and foremost are the neurologic injury syndromes. And there's been a lot of work done there. I want to give credit to Dr. Stephanie Senoff from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's done a tremendous amount of work on SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins and how they uh, actually, once the vaccine is installed, the genetic information, how the spike protein travels in exosomes uh, through axonal pathways throughout the body. Uh, Dr. Senoff's work has been notable, and she's a co-author with myself on several publications now. And recently, she was asked to join Laura Ingram on Fox News. I wanted to give you uh, the insight from this important interview regarding uh, neurologic injury syndromes that are occurring after COVID-19 vaccination and its pathophysiologic rationale. So let's listen in. Laura Ingram, Fox News, Dr. Stephanie Senoff. My next guest, a very well-respected MIT scientist, recently gave a presentation warning of the possible long-term side effects of the COVID vaccines. She wrote, through the prion-like action of the spike protein, we will likely see an alarming increase in several major neurodegenerative diseases with increasing prevalence among younger and younger populations. Joining me now is Dr. Stephanie Senap senior research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. Dr. Senef, um, this is absolutely terrifying to a layperson to hear, uh, as this push for vaccines and boosters and, and new boosters and multiple boosters for our younger population continue. What do we need to know? I first of all think it's outrageous to be giving vaccines to young people because they they don't have a risk of a very very low risk of dying from COVID, so they they don't get a benefit. And when you look at the potential harm from these vaccines, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And certainly, repeated boosters is just going to be very uh, devastating, I think, in the long term. And um, it's just a uh, I've done a lot of research, and I I really am beginning to understand exactly how the process takes place and it's uh, very disturbing. Now the neurodegenerative aspect of this that you specifically highlight from your research, explain that if you can in layman's terms. Yes, I'll try to. And of course, the science is never easy, but it's quite fascinating what happens. The the vaccine gets injected into the arm. The muscle cells get very upset. They bring in a whole bunch of troops. The immune cells come in, take up the vaccine themselves. They take up the nanoparticles. They start making spike protein. The particles basically get your cells to produce lots and lots of spike protein in a hurry. Spike is the most toxic part of the virus. And these immune cells then rush into the lymph system, rush to the spleen. Many of them end up in the spleen, which is where you want uh, them to be to produce the antibodies. That's the goal. So they've designed it. And they're very happy to see that they end up in the spleen, making lots of spike protein, and then invoking an immune response that produces antibodies by the B cells. But the problem is that those germinal centers in the spleen are really the center place where Parkinson's disease develops and probably many other uh, neurodegenerative diseases. But for Parkinson's, it's been very well laid out. 
that, uh, that you get that prion-like proteins even from infections in the gut. Immune cells take them to the spleen, to those germinal centers, and then they start spewing out exosomes. These are little lipid particles that are released by the cell, unloading mm. that toxic protein and shipping it along the vagus nerve to the brain. This is sort of well known with respect to Parkinson's disease, and that's the model I'm using. It feels to me like this is a perfect setup for it. Doctor, Doctor Seneff, um, this is a very short segment. We're going to have you back, but any parent who's been pressured into giving a child uh, this vac vaccination, what do you say to them tonight? Uh, they should do everything they can to avoid it. Absolutely everything they can. Dr. Seneff, um, this deserves a longer conversation that you and I are going to have on my podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, and I'll continue to post uh, your research and your findings. You can tell that <clears throat> the extreme concern in Laura Ingram's uh, commentary and her demeanor on this, that this is extraordinary, that we now have the realization that the spike protein could travel by exosomes through neuronal pathways to the brain. We had an idea that the lipid nanoparticles themselves could cross the blood-brain barrier and then install spike protein uh, into cells within the brain and directly cause damage. We thought that was accounting for most of the neurologic syndromes, but the fact that it could have a wider distribution and then through immune systems and then through exosomal travel slowly accumulate and hyperconcentrate in the brain is very disturbing. The term prion-like is used. Now, prion is itself a non-infectious protein, but that can be acquired and cause neurologic disease. And uh, the examples would be mad cow disease, uh, as an example of a prion-like uh, disease. So uh, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to use the word prion with SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, but we clearly can use the term spike protein disease that there are now uh, just, again, over a thousand peer-reviewed publications uh, showing how the spike protein is dangerous to the human body and how the vaccines produce uh, an uncontrolled production of spike protein for an uncontrolled duration of time and potentially for production of spike protein in very strategically vulnerable organs, including the heart, the brain, uh, the bone marrow, uh, reproductive organs in the human body. All of this is greatly disturbing. I think everybody listening to this should be disturbed. But the first positive signs of the EU, as well as the UK, potentially dropping uh, vaccine boosters, letting the body clear out the original insult of the spike protein, is gratifying to hear. And uh, we're hoping that more and more vaccine mandates will be dropped in the United States and people will be relieved of this, um, basically, a, a threat to their health. Uh, they know with each uh, injection of COVID-19 vaccination, whether it be Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, indeed, there is a threat to human health that's real, including the risks of immediate death, the immediate injury syndromes, uh, long-term uh, disability, and uh, overall continued harm to the human body. Now, I want to just give you, while I'm on this topic, I might as well just give you the red box summary. This is through January 7th, 2022. Uh, the U.S. CDC Vaccine Universe Event Reporting System. <clears throat> we know about half of these events are domestic, half are outside the United States. The total number of safety reports now is 1,033,992 safety reports. This breaks all records for safety reports, 21,745 deaths that have occurred after COVID-19 vaccination. We know the limit there, acceptable for any 
uh, vaccine would be about 50 deaths per vaccine. So we're far beyond that. 115,754 hospitalizations, that's concordant with these uh, fatal events, 112,235 urgent care visits, uh, 161,439 office visits due to vaccine injuries. I've seen them in my clinic. 8,811 cases of anaphylaxis or fatal allergic reactions. 12,951 cases of Bell's palsy. That's a paralyzed face on one side. Uh, now, now nearly 13,000 have that to live with after COVID-19 vaccination. 25,773 cases of myocarditis and pericarditis. That number is staggering. Uh, we've now had uh, in the news cycle a uh, famous uh, uh, Olympic hopeful developed myocarditis. And I think the important point of this development is this Olympic hopeful is uh, is, is a woman. It's, it's a young woman and not a man. And uh, I think that opens up people's eyes that, in fact, women can develop uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine-induced myocarditis. It's certainly not as as prevalent as it is uh, in in men, but I, I wanted people to understand this. And uh, let me get her name for you. This uh, Swiss athlete, uh, her name is Fabian Schlumpf, uh, and she's 31, and uh, she's a Swiss, Swiss marathon record holder. It was announced on uh, January 7th that she said, unfortunately, myocarditis is holding me back right now. It's definitely not an easy time, but I'm not giving up. I hope to be back soon chasing my dreams and my competitors. The 31-year-old reported uh, feeling fatigued in everyday life after her heart rate skyrocketed during an easy endurance run last month. She sought out a doctor and diagnosed with myocarditis. Uh, the experienced runner had planned to go to a training camp in Portugal beginning, at the beginning of this year, uh, but this was canceled after her diagnosis. Uh, nobody can say how long I have to put my career on hold. Uh, Schrump confirmed uh, to a Swiss newspaper that she had been triple vaccinated uh, and that she has not had COVID. So I think this uh, brings it to light that, in fact, this is indeed happening. The myocarditis cases, again, I'm reading from the Open VAERS uh, CDC report, 25,773 cases of myocarditis. I hope all of those who are reported are refraining from physical activity and getting proper evaluation. But to move on in the VAERS report, we've had 37,466 severe allergic reactions. And the CDC and FDA have given us no hints on who's likely to have these allergic reactions. So I think uh, everybody undergoing vaccination should keep this in mind that it could be them. Uh, 24,791 cases of life-threatening events. And uh, sadly, in the last statistics I'll give you, 37,937 permanently disabled Americans after COVID-19 vaccination. So we are on a course uh, setting every record we could for a biologically uh, unsafe, dangerous agent that's widely used in a public program that's now been vaccinated, that's now been mandated. No wonder so many people are resistant to taking COVID-19 vaccination. I have a wonderful program for you. On the back side, I have a long interview with Dr. Teresa Long. And Dr. Long uh, is a physician who also has been trained in epidemiology, but occupational and aerospace health. And she's going to give us some insights into COVID-19, the respiratory illness, and mass vaccination as it applies to those who work in the aerospace industry, pilots, flight attendants, others 
uh, you and I are frequent passengers on planes, so it's of interest to us. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. I want to put in a word for a healthy cell. Uh, a new product line that I have in my household is called Bioactive Multi. Now, this is essential uh, vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants in a pill-free ultra-absorption gel, and it supports optimal nutrition and health. You can tell I'm coughing right now. I have a little post-infectious asthma, and I had a upper respiratory illness last week that took me out of work, and I was cautious not to go into work with an upper respiratory illness, whether it's COVID-19 or not, and I think that's appropriate. But I'm about to take a bioactive multi in recovery from my uh, upper respiratory extract illness, and I want to go over uh, what it does for the human body. The first is for immune health. It has vitamin C, selenium, zinc, and vitamin D3. For heart health, it has vitamin K2, folate, niacinamide, polyphenols. For brain health, vitamin C, vitamin B12, thiamine, and zinc. Bones, vitamin D3, vitamin K2, zinc, and manganese. And then for skin, vitamin E, selenium, vitamin C, and biotin. You can see a lot of these micronutrients serve multiple organ systems, but boy, that sounds like a great idea. I'm gonna take one now uh, and then see some elderly people in my home helping support their immune health. I really think the Healthy Cell product line is oriented towards our seniors because we know as the GI tract in the elderly becomes less absorptive that so many of these pill forms of vitamins simply are not absorbed. And so we need this immediate absorption. Healthy Cell guarantees it. Rely on it. Go to HealthyCell.com and and get 20% off your first order by putting in the promo code OUTLOUD. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation, that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com, where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show 
Dr. Teresa Long. Dr. Long received her undergraduate degree at the University of Texas in Austin. She went on to medical school at the University of Texas uh, at Houston, that is the Texas Medical Center. And then from there, she trained in family medicine at Fort Hood and went on uh, in the the military as a field surgeon uh, for uh, 10 years. She received specialty training and became board certified uh, in aviation and occupational medicine. She received her master's of public health at the University of West Florida, and she's really been a leading voice on uh, aviation safety as it applies to both COVID-19 and the vaccine. So I wanted to bring her on the show since so many of us fly, whether we fly uh, in the commercial sector or private sector, and I wanted her viewpoints about uh, how she thinks the pandemic has influenced aviation and, and what we have to look to in terms of critical issues in the future. Dr. Long, welcome to the McCullough Report. Hey, uh, Peter, thank you for having me. Well, why don't you go ahead and set the stage? Uh, Let's start with the respiratory illness. Uh, What difficulties do you see with the respiratory illness as it relates to to pilots and flight personnel? Well, of course, um, in in aviation, we always have to worry about um, hypoxic events. You have to worry about high-performance aircraft and altitude So anything that can affect the respiratory system is something that we have to be concerned about. So does that mean if someone has uh, incipient COVID-19 and uh, they're coming down with it, let's say on a long flight, do you think there's a concern about hypoxemia being exaggerated if they're in flight? There's there's the potential. We see hypoxemia um, from COVID infection. And um, so that's, of course, a concern. You see all these people that initially when COVID came around um, would have O2 sats that were extremely low and they'd be walking around, um, which was something we really hadn't seen before as doctors. Well, how do, how do we interpret that? Because I've seen, I just got a phone call actually for someone with a lower oxygen. How do we interpret that when someone has a lower oxygen saturation, but they're not uh, very breathless, really, at all, <coughs> and they're mentating fine. What what does that really mean in the setting of COVID nineteen? Is it is the oxygen saturation alone the panic number, or do we have to integrate the degree of shortness of breath and their ability to mentate? Right. Well, so their functional capacity and 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 uh, the functional status is important. And so sometimes you see these young um, athletes and the, these other people that, um, can function really well, even though they're pretty significantly compromised. Um, and as you know, with young people, um, they compensate very well, they compensate very well, and then they crash. That's the reason why it's called sudden acute respiratory (laughs) distress syndrome. I mean, I think that's the, the challenging thing about it. Now in, in your, uh, uh, analysis of things. Have there been major outbreaks or spread that's occurred on airplanes? Let's say commercial airplanes. Um, not that I'm aware of, and that the the filtration systems on um, aircraft is very well. We know the airflow patterns. Um, they don't go front to back. Um, they go in a circular uh, motion, and so they have they have uh, actually pretty robust filtration. Uh, systems aboard commercial aircraft. And so, um, you know, 
otherwise you you you're spread out six feet apart and then everyone loads onto this aircraft and uh, you know what you don't see is this massive outbreak um, of covid and you know that covid positive people have surely gone on on commercial airline flights um, during this pandemic well sure so so you don't hear about you know 200 people getting off a flight and all getting covid but you certainly can see COVID traveling around the globe. So for instance, when the Omicron outbreak was described in Botswana and South Africa, they tried to shut down commercial flights and it was such a useless um, exercise because people had already boarded flights and they had already gone somewhere. So they right. carry the virus in a pre-symptomatic phase where they're not spreading it, uh, but they are carrying it. And then when they express symptoms, once they land and they're at their new country, that's where it takes off. Right. Right. And I think I think there's the concern about the COVID infection, but um, more so in from my standpoint is is the vaccination and how that affects pilots and, and the potential risk um, of complications and side effects from the vaccination on the pilots that are actually piloting the aircraft. Yeah, well, we've heard great resistance among the pilots in terms of vaccination. And um, what are the major concerns of pilots? Why are they so fearful of getting the vaccine? Well, to a pilot, um, their medical certificate that they get to fly is predicated on them being in good health. And so their health is their ticket to fly. It is um, their career. And whether it's in the military, on the civilian side, pilots notoriously um, are in good health. And they want to remain in good health so that they can continue to fly. They love to fly. And so anything that puts them at risk and anytime they feel that they are taking an unnecessary risk with their health, pilots are generally very hesitant to do that. So with the COVID-19 vaccines, um, the goal is to try to prevent the transmission of, of covid do you think there's any evidence that, in fact, if they take the vaccines, they're not going to transmit it, to, let's say, to each other in the cockpit? Um, I, I don't know about you, Peter, but I have not seen that the that that simply being vaccinated has prevented the spread of COVID nineteen. Well, I, I think we're looking at ecological analysis. It's fairly obvious. The Supermanian and, and colleagues pointed out that. The more we vaccinate, the worse it gets. I just checked the outbreak curves for Omicron, and it looks like the UK and South Africa are on the back end of their curves. It's about a six-week Omicron curve. We're at about our peak right now. But it looks like, from an ecological perspective, it hasn't stopped transmission. And then there are direct uh, contact tracing studies, one by Singarajan and all published in Lancet, showing 39% of all transmission is from fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. So to, to me, I, to me, it just it, if the goal was to try to keep the pilots from spreading it to each other in the cockpit, um, that that goal won't be achieved. Well, in the cockpit, I'm more concerned about anything that's going to lead to sudden incapacitation, right? Anything that's going to cloud their mentation, their focus. So, <clears throat> from that perspective, those things that would be very concerning would be myocardial infarction a stroke, pulmonary embolism, those kind of things, uh, seizures. And so 
when we look at the VARES data and we start to see that more and more reports have emerged with these kind of complications from the vaccine, um, that's very concerning. And of course, you know from the CDC that there's the increased risk of myocarditis. And of course, my concern is that if we have a pilot who's been vaccinated with one, two, and now a booster, three independent factors for uh, myocarditis, and then they get the, the infection anyways. So now we're looking at people with up to four independent risk factors for myocarditis in a relatively short period of time. There's just no research studies out there that show whether or not those things happening um, in short order whether the overall effect is additive or um, whether it, you know, it's going to take your risk for myocarditis from 2.3% to 20% or 30%. We just don't have those studies yet. Is there any uh, uh, plan to have the pilots potentially screened for myocarditis or for proclivity for venous thromboembolic events after vaccination? Is there any, any type of safety programs out there? I really wish there would be, um, and and uh, I've advocated for them. I think that in in aviation, safety is is paramount, and everything we do is centered around safety. So I don't think you can be too cautious. And I think that out of the abundance of, of, of precaution, we absolutely should be screening these pilots because pilots notoriously underreport. Again, their health is tied to their ability to fly. So there aren't, pilots just don't want to come forward and tell you that they're having chest pain or they're having brain fog because they know that it's likely to end their ability to, to hold that job. Okay, well, let's carry this forward. Uh, let's say a pilot, uh, a, a man in his 30s, uh, gets one of the messenger RNA vaccines, does develop chest pain. Uh, and some effort intolerance. He sees a doctor. Uh, the doctor makes the diagnosis of vaccine-induced myocarditis, and let's say he, you know, he 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 reports it. He reports it to his uh, airline and says, "Listen, I have vaccine-induced myocarditis. Uh, what are the ramifications there in terms of time off and return to work? What, what's the plan?" Right. So, so then there's a, a waiting period, clearing clearance from cardiologists, making sure you're asymptomatic and you can return. Um, and, and there's a process in place for many things, everything from cancer to heart attacks, where you can return to flying. But again, pilots don't even like to take, they, they really are adverse to, to taking that risk with their career. So there is a way back. Um, but I would prefer if we instituted a screening process, then it isn't someone stepping forward in a very politically charged environment over something that is, is, has really been politicized. Instead, it's just, hey, I might as well tell them I'm having chest pain because I have to go through screening next month anyways, um, and they're going to find it anyways. So I, I think the most prudent thing to do is to institute a screening. And re you remember they had the return to play protocols um, for professional athletes and collegiate athletes just from COVID-19 infection. 
So why wouldn't we institute that for pilots um, who have both had a COVID-19 infection and who've been vaccinated? That makes a lot of sense. You know, as a cardiologist, when I see patients, <coughs> patients with myocarditis, I divide it largely up to uh, three-month segments of time where, you know, we go probably at least three months to, to we need to get some ascertainment of, you know, is the process uh, stabilized or not a result? We rely on multi-marker imaging, the use of echocardiography, the EKG, and the clinical exam. And um, I, I know it just doesn't go away in a few days. Uh, and so at least three month increments. And I think everybody's going to basically start to, to see this uh, play out. Uh, there was a recent athlete that just uh, announced myocarditis. Her name is Fabian Schlumpf. And she was a triple vaccinated Olympic athlete, uh, a runner. And uh, the headlines here announced that this is possible end of her career. And she finished, she finished 12th in the <clears throat> marathon at the recent Olympic Games in Tokyo. Uh, and she's a Swiss runner. She's just terrific. And uh, she, she wrote on Instagram, unfortunately, myocarditis is holding me back right now. It's definitely not an easy time, but I'm not giving up. I hope to be back soon, tracing my, chasing my dreams and my competitors. She was reported to be fatigued in everyday life. And after her heart rate skyrocketed during an easy endurance run last month, she sought out a doctor diagnosed with myocarditis. Um, and they're going to, you know, cancel all her, her trips. And, and, and basically she said, nobody can say how long my, I have to put my career on hold. And I think that's correct. You know, one of the reasons why her heart rate went up with just a mild run is um, she had left ventricular dysfunction. She actually had, she actually had, reduced ejection fraction and the heart rate was compensating for it. And that's what we're starting to see people uh, report. What, what's the implications if um, a, a pilot who has myocarditis and then is, uh, you know, flying and, and there is, uh, isn't there a, in a sense, a lower partial pressure of oxygen in the cab cabin when you're flying like a commercial flight? Right. So, so yes. And it, it depends on the type of aircraft and the, whether we're talking about high performance. And so we have different um, oxygen systems. So, so we just have, we have a lower threshold with pilots of what we um, will accept. And, and unlike these professional athletes, if they, if they fall out, they're not taking everybody in the stadium with them. Right. And the pilot is, there and they're piloting the aircraft and everybody is along for the ride. So I, we have always, all of our standards being set in place have, have come about from really a, quite often very tragic accidents and things where we recognize that some system or uh, some standard um, needed to be set such that uh, we prevented similar accidents from occurring. So these aren't these aren't willy nilly um, regulations and and safety mechanisms put in place. And so whenever we start cutting corners, whenever we start ignoring them, um, that's different. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, pilots. You and I can take over the counter medication and go to work. Um, 
pilots can't take Benadryl and go fly. There's a lot of over-the-counter medications that are prohibited from use when pilots are flying. Um, and so it's a whole different mindset and a whole, whole different thought process. Um, even allergy medications, um, things that we just wouldn't give a second thought to, to take and go to work. Um, pilots can't have in their system when they're flying. Yeah, that's, so, that's a really good point. Let's take up the issue of venous thromboembolism. I think that's the, the big hot button. You know, across all the vaccines, there are now well-described in the literature various thrombotic syndromes. It, with the Johnson Johnson AstraZeneca vaccine, they actually have official warnings in women age 18 to 49 for uh, venous thrombosis in the brain. But there have been th thrombotic syndromes reported um, with or without thrombocytopenia uh, with the messenger RNA vaccines, just, just loads of them <coughs> in the literature. And I think the pilots that I've talked to, the, their greatest concern is that they're in the cockpit and they, they just can't move. I mean, it's a pretty tight space. Uh, their legs are kind of entrapped with all the instruments there. They can't move and uh, they feel that they're already at risk for a deep venous thrombosis. And if they took the vaccine and, and their blood is in a sense, hypercoagulable from exposure to the spike protein, they could be set up for a, a lethal event, a pulmonary embolism. How real are those concerns? I think, I think they're very real and they're very legitimate, especially when you look at the pilots that chronically fly long flights and they're flying overseas um, in from Hawaii and and they do, they're very restricted in, in, in getting up and moving around. And of course they try, but uh, you and I might not fly long flights like that, but maybe a few times a year, whereas some of them fly several times a month um, on these long haul flights. So this is a very real concern. <laughs> and um, I, I've had so many pilots from literally around the world uh, and across the country reach out to me and express concerns um, about taking this risk and taking the vaccine um, when we don't know both the, the short and long-term implications of this. Are there any, um, are there any strategies potentially measuring a D-dimer or even doing ultrasonic screening that's been considered for pilots as far as you know? Um, not that I know. I would love to see it, um, and I would love to to do those studies and and um, and get all of those data points. And I would love to have those data points before before this was rolled out in the aviation community. Um, but that that's not what's happened. But I, I think um, people learn like, and you have DVTs and PEs, but you have people like Cody Flint. Um, who was an aviation pilot, 10,000 hour agricultural pilot who took the vaccination and um, within 48 hours went to go flying and almost blacked out um, from increased intracranial pressure. And um, thank God he was able to land his plane, but um, he will probably never fly again. And so this directly impacted his livelihood, his ability to provide for his family. And, um, you know, that's, it's incredibly tragic. Um, something they love to do and uh, will never be able to do again. 
of no fault of his own. He was just trying to do his part and take the vaccine. And, um, and that's very tragic, very preventable. What do you think about the situation where, uh, let's say a pilot has taken, uh, let's say two doses of a messenger RNA vaccine, but uh, they, they did it early in the program. Uh, let's say about a year ago, January of 2020, and they've been delaying on the booster, looking at the safety data, and they've made the decision not to get a booster. Do you think somebody who's a year after taking the vaccines, do you think they're at any risk for problems in the cockpit? Well, I think there's research that shows that that spike protein can be produced, I believe it's for at least 16 months um, after, and uh, hopefully we'll have more, more data as time goes on and as to how long that spike protein is produced. So I, I don't know when I can say it's safe. Um, what's your experience there, Peter? I mean, uh, I've, I've definitely seen and heard cases where um, people have pulmonary embolisms completely unprovoked, um, you know, maybe two, three, four months after the vaccine, but they said, well, they kind of always had some kind of chest discomfort and a little bit of shortness of breath um, from the time they got the vaccine all the way up until it, it got acutely worse and they developed a, a PE. So I'm not sure if those are like microclots that they finally had a a larger PE, but um, I look at that and I, and there's no, there's no hypercoagulable state. There's no um, provoking factor. So I think this is all stuff that we need more data and more information on, but we shouldn't assume that it's safe and move forward. Um, I, I've never operated that way where we don't have the data on a drug and I say, well, I'm going to give it to you and assume it's safe until proven otherwise. I think we've always proceeded with this uh, caution, especially when it came to new medications that we have to assume it's not safe until proven otherwise, especially in the aviation environment. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It just, it's, again, it's taking um, a precaution the spike protein does appear to last in the human body a long time. And while the, the cardiac and thromboembolic risk, they may uh, ebb over time, and I, I certainly hope they do over a year, I was impressed with um, a presentation made actually last night on Fox News, Laura Ingram, the Ingram angle, Dr. Stephanie Senoff from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology was presenting on how the spike protein gets into the human brain through what's called exomes. And those are small phospholipid packets that carry, uh, it actually transmits up nerve bundles into the brain. And she was giving America great concern about the vaccines uh, uh, influencing uh, cognitive function over time. Do the pilots get in their training and recertification, they get tests of cognitive function and reaction speeds, things like that? Um, not if there isn't an, a concern there. Right. So if you have a 25 year old um, and, and they're not, you know, reporting any kind of um, altered mental status or difficulty remembering things that that's just not going to be a uh, there is no you know, screening process, per se, to have them do speed tests or 
um, any kind of neuropsych eval. So, and, but this is a complaint that I have had a lot of pilots call me and, and say that they know people who've taken the vaccine and they develop this kind of this brain fog where they have difficulty focusing, uh, bad headaches or whatever. And so that's concerning because we don't know exactly what that is. I worry it's like Cody Flint. Is there increased intracranial pressure? Is there something else going on there from this vaccine? And um, yeah, I did read that report and saw the, the biodistribution study about it getting into the brain. That's very concerning for me. Yeah, we've never had a vaccine get into the brain. I can tell you, I see these patients in the office that um, it's either like a mild cognitive decline. I've seen some cerebellar syndromes and clearly tinnitus ringing in the ear and headaches. And it's the hardest thing to know if I should get a CAT scan or MRI. Do I do imaging? Do we just follow it uh, clinically? Um, I've tend to be cautious and get uh, imaging of the brain because of the, you know, the legitimate concerns of um, stroke, various forms of hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke, well, and or the, uh, the cavernous venous or um, central venous sinus thrombosis. And for the heart, you know, there's no shortage of, of people who now are presenting with various forms of chest pain, discomfort uh, in the chest area. And I can tell you my go-to approach now is I do certainly do a history and physical EKG, echocardiogram, and then my blood testing includes D-dimer, uh, which is a test. It gives us an idea of proclivity for venous thromboembolic events, cardiac troponin, preferably the high sensitivity cardiac troponin, blood B-type natriuretic peptide, uh, blood ST2, uh, and then blood galactin-3. And I think with a combination of those, that would be all supportable with the American Heart Association heart failure guidelines. That'd be supportable to try to identify both early and late myocarditis or myocardial injury. And I've, I've found patients along that continuum, but the vaccines in a sense have created a whole new uh, sets of disease categories for us. And I think because uh, so many of the pilots are now uh, going to be uh, subscribing to vaccines, it's going to keep the field of um, aviation and occupational medicine pretty busy. Yes. And, you know, I would love to see the Big Ten um, study that they did on, on uh, athletes after COVID with a cardiac MRI. I would love to see that repeated on pilots after vaccination and, and get a real sense of that. And as you remember from that study, um, when they took all of the athletes who had contracted COVID and did a screening survey for them on symptoms and EKG, they only identified, I believe is 0.31% had myocarditis by symptoms and EKG. But when they did a cardiac MRI on 100% of them, 2.3% of them had myocarditis. So I would love to see that repeated with the vaccination um, and see how those numbers fare out. And then the third study I would love to see is people who've been vaccinated and then got COVID and had a cardiac MRI um, and really see what, how the synergism of both the vaccine and the infection. And is that something we really have to be factoring into um, assessing these pilots? I think th those are some really important points. 
So with the study of the Big Ten athletes, uh, very few clinically had myocarditis. A small fraction actually did have some evidence of late cannulium enhancement by MRI. Uh, but there's a paper by Joy and colleagues published in JACC Imaging that looked at uh, just community um, uh, COVID-19, mild community COVID-19, and really did detailed assessment and could not find any significant uh, myocarditis at all with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. So it went along with the, the Big Ten study. And that's in contrast to the paper by Trong and colleagues published from the University of Utah at Salt Lake, where they had a published case series of about uh, 140 um, young people who were hospitalized with vaccine-induced myocarditis. And there, it was stunning. 97% had cardiac damage as assessed by MRI. It was night and day. The vaccine causes far more heart damage than the respiratory illness ever does. I tell you that that's what keeps me up at night is the unpredictable nature and the, the amount of damage. And, and like I said, their health is their ticket to fly and um, taking a risk um, at, with that for, for these individuals, it's, it's not only, you know, their risk, but we're flying in the back of a plane. So um, I, you know, the, the federal code of regulation, pilots are not supposed to fly if they are taking a medication that has not been approved for 12 months. And I, I think that's a very, very prudent thing to have in place because we have new drugs come on the market all the time. And we thought they were going to be wonderful drugs and no problem. And you know, a few years go by and we collect enough data and say, oh my gosh, something's going on here and we need to pull the drug off the market. And so um, I don't think this is any exception. I think data keeps emerging that raises more and more red flags. Well, I tell you, I think it's extremely concerning. that This has been a, a, a valuable uh, interview for the McCullough Report. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you, Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.